Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about Mary Anning, one of the most important figures in early paleontology. And uh, I tell you this, she had to fight through a fair bit of rubbish in her lifetime just to sort of keep a crust on the table and never mind actually, you know, getting the recognition she deserved as a, as a pretty influential scientist in in, uh, in the in the 19th century there. So we're going to have a chat about her and, and, and exa- you know, exactly what she got up to. Um, obviously, most kids go through a phase of, you know, absolutely bloody loving dinosaurs. And our mate Mary, she actually just never grew out of it. She found her first complete fossil with the help of her brother at the age of 12. And uh, from then on, you just you just couldn't bloody stop her from digging, from digging these things out of the ground. She spent her entire life finding and excavating dinosaur fossils and selling them to rich collectors and scientists. And uh, she actually provoked a you know pretty significant shift in in geological and, if you'll believe it, theological thinking at the time. And uh, which is you know not a bad day in the office for a, for a, a paleontologist at this time. So let's get to it and see what she was all about. She was born on the twenty first of May, seventeen ninety nine, as the fifth child of Richard and Molly Anning. So uh, this is a, a poor working-class couple in Lyme Regis, right down the south coast of England there. And uh, Richard used to dig fossils out of the cliffs uh, to try to earn a bit of extra scrilladilla, uh, as there wasn't a, lot, wasn't a lot of cash going around, and uh, tourists, uh, you know, they used to like buying these little fossils as souvenirs. So, you know, Richard and Molly, they've got 10 kids in all, but only two of them survived past childhood. Their second kid, Joseph, and, well, obviously Mary. I mean, you know, twist ending, Mary also survived to adulthood. Now, this this actually, you know, sounds pretty bloody tragic, but it wasn't all that unco- uncommon back then, what with, you know, measles and smallpox and all sorts of other, you know, nasty stuff like that. Heaps and heaps of working class kids never made it past the age of five. Or, you know, not quite a majority, but, you know, just just under half of uh, of working class kids in this period didn't even make it to the age of five, which is pretty pretty nasty. You know, not, not, a, nice, uh, not a nice state of affairs for the working class there. But uh, Anning herself, uh, she almost went the same way as you know so many kids at this uh, this age very nearly didn't make it past two never mind five because uh, in the summer of 1800 she's being held by a group of women hanging out under a tree um they're watching some equestrian parade or something i don't actually i can't remember exactly what it was but something to do with horses dancing about anyway having a great time watching that but next minute next minute out of nowhere big bloody great big lightning bolt hits the tree kills the three women under it but adding survives now mate mary she's absolutely fine now apparently She's a weak little thing, weak little tiny thing as a baby. But after getting, you know, 40,000 volts blasted through her, she, she perked up a fair bit and was much more energetic and up and about afterwards. So nice one there, Mary, getting hit by the lightning bolt and really, you know, sort of uh, making the most of that, I, I suppose. Anyway, despite having a quick mind and a sharp curiosity, she, you know, much like much of the working class at the time, she didn't get much of an education. She learned to read and write, no worries. But generally speaking, she didn't get as much schooling into her as she would have liked. And, you know, after her lightning bolt charged sort of uh, brain activity kicked off there after you know going from a sickly a sickly weak and sort of you know rather boring little kid into this this sprightly young girl that she was uh, afterwards you know it was a bit of a shame that she didn't really get the schooling into her that she was hoping for but instead of um you know instead of sort of going on to to hire things in education like this she has to help her family uh make a bit of money by digging up fossils in the cliffs near near lime regis where she grows up there's a big set of cliffs there called the blue lias blue lias i don't know how to say it l-i-a-s blue lias i'm going to go for uh and these things were bloody 
filled with dinosaur bones waiting to be snapped up. So Anning, she's down there every day digging them out to sell to tourists. Lyme Regis had become uh, a lot more popular with tourists, uh, uh, you know, for, as a destination, I guess, for the, you know, these rich knobby bastards at the time, because the French Revolution was going on, and uh, this meant that their, you know, usual getaways weren't uh, quite as friendly to rich blokes with fancy titles and big hats. They were, you know, liable to get rather aggressive haircut from the uh, from the the French there if they were heading down that way. So. This was excellent. This this means very, very good news for the poor people in Lyme Regis, you know, like Anning and her family, as it meant that they had a ready market for all the all the fossils that they were digging up at the time. Now, at this stage, collecting fossils is more of a hobby than anything else, not a particularly scientific pursuit in, in the way that you'd, we'd look at it now. Uh, you know, it's more like Tarzos or magic cards, I suppose. Um, but uh, the people, you know, who were interested in this sort of thing, uh, you know, people who are interested in natural science and, 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 and that sort of stuff, they realise, oh, hang on here, There's, these fossils are bloody useful in you know, figuring things out, what was going on yonks ago, eh? So a lot of these gentlemen scholars, gentlemen scientists, sort of you know, rich men with, with a lot of free time and a lot of money started to become more interested in the fossils that were being sold in places like Lyme Regis. And you know, the, collection, the collecting of them takes more of a, I mean, a bit more of a scientific bent. Now, obviously, this doesn't matter to the, to the Annings. They don't care if, what, what they're doing. You know, they're just selling them to them. They don't care what they do with them at all. Bloody put them on the wall, frame them, put, you know, eat them on pizza. It doesn't matter what they're doing with them. They're just much more concerned with keeping their snoots above water financially here. And so after digging up all these fossils, they set up little tables in front of their house to sell them. And I tell you this, they desperately needed the cash too. So they were very, very thankful for anyone who was coming past buying the fossils because they needed the money. By this stage, the Napoleonic Wars are kicking off. Food is expensive as you would, you know, expensive anything, you wouldn't believe it. And the working class having a terrible time of it, terrible, terrible time of it. The price of wheat tripled at one point and people couldn't afford to put, you know, food on the table. So they're doing their best with uh, this fossil selling and, you know, they do okay keeping themselves going along until bloody disaster. Check this out. Old Richard Anning, he does the old Red Dead Redemption trick and dies of tuberculosis in 1810. Nice one, old mate. Old, old bloody Dickie Anning, he's shuffled off this mortal coil and this makes things pretty bloody tough on poor old Molly and, and the two kids who were close to destitute at this stage in 1810. They pull together, and the three of them, they do good work down there by the cliffs, uh, digging out fossils and selling them off, continuing to do that, even though now Richard isn't around to you know, lend a hand and do his work, whatever he was doing. The three of them, they try to pull together. They're, they're, they're getting as many of these fossils out of the cliffs to try to sell them as possible. But it is, it is tough going. I'll tell you this, it's tough going. They had to apply for, uh, for I think it was a parish relief fund at some point, and, and they were, were really kind of relying on the charity of people uh, as well as this, uh, this income from the fossils. However, so this isn't to last, because in 1811, in 1811, things really, really take off for the Annings. And this is, this, is, this is where it all kicks off for Mary in particular, when, well, I guess it was actually Joseph who found the first thing, but that's not the point. Joseph, uh, he finds uh, a 1.2-metre ichthyosaur skull, right? Now, he is he likes his dinosaur hunting and his dinosaur hunting. That's definitely not what it is. That made it sound a lot more romantic than it is. It's digging fossils out of a cliff. It's not it's not hunting dinosaurs. Anyway, he's he, obviously he's doing this to make ends meet. He's not as into it as Mary is, right? But when Joseph finds this massive skull, Mary gets to work to find the rest of the skeleton. She can't believe her luck. She's only 12. Remember, she's only 12 at this stage. But uh, check this out. Get around them. Can't believe their luck. They find the whole skeleton. And they flog the whole thing for 23 pounds. In today's money, that's 1,500 pounds. 1,500 pounds is a lot of money, especially, you know, at this stage when you're sort of, you know, working not even paycheck to paycheck, you're working fossil to fossil here. Um, so getting getting 1,500 bucks in the pocket, a very, very big deal for them here. Now, the guy that they sell this uh, this skeleton to, this ichthyosaur skeleton, 
is a bloke whose name is Henry Henley. And I really don't know what he did as a newborn to deserve being called that. But anyway, Henry Henley buys it and he sells it on to William Bullock, a famous collector. Now, Bullock, he puts it on display in London and people are loving it. They cannot get enough of this thing. It is drawing crowds like you wouldn't believe. People are all coming from far and wide to see this ichthyosaur skeleton, you know, complete as it is like this. Why? Because at this stage... Most people still believe in all the biblical nonsense about the earth being created in seven days and only being a few thousand years old. And this fossil is a pretty clear contradiction of, of, of this whole, you know, generally accepted theory that people have. Interestingly, I like this as well. Before being called an ichthyos, so obviously they didn't, you know, Joseph didn't dig it out of the ground and go, oh, yes, of course, an ichthyos. I mean, a four-year-old this, these days would be able to do that, given yeah, their encyclopedic knowledge of dinosaurs. But Joseph's like, oh, I don't know what this is. And when it's put on display in London, it was known as a crocodile in fossil state, which I reckon is pretty good. You know, just trying to find the closest thing possible, you know, closest applicable animal to it, calling it a crocodile. But anyway, this is a big wing. Big, 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 big win for the Anning uh, fossil business. And uh, Mary, I'll tell you this, she makes the most of it by continuing to hunt for fossils. Her mum, well, you know, wasn't as into it as, as she was. And, and Joseph, again, as I say, did a bit of hunting here. And, again, not hunting. Did a bit of fossiling, fossicking for fossils. I don't know. Um, he had an apprenticeship uh, to worry about. So most of the heavy lifting here was done by Mary. Her family, not, not quite as into it as she was. So where this all ends up, right, where this all ends up is, is Mary Anning, more or less every day, she's down the cliff sticking up dinosaur bones. And despite her working like the clappers to keep the family in the black, things really aren't going well as we head into the 1820s. She hasn't found anything particularly good for about a year, and her family is in a tight spot with no money. So she's done well to tide them over until this point, till 1820. But things are kind of drying up. It's not going too well. What happens is, this absolute hero of a bloke named Lieutenant Colonel Thomas James Birch, right? He comes to their rescue. He auctions off all of the fossils that he'd bought off them over the years, quite a number, I can tell you, and he raises 400 pounds, almost 38,000 pounds in today's money. He then gives a bunch of this spondola to the Annings themselves. But I'll tell you this, the auction did a lot more than that. Obviously, he's gone and bought them off, off the, the, the Anning family. He's displayed them, whatever else. He's collected them. He's gone and sold out. He's presumably made a fair bit of money from them. Not only has he given a bunch of the money back to the Annings, which is a pretty good thing to do, considering that they're just his. Like he's bought and he's bought them, and you know he doesn't know them anything anymore. Despite the fact that he's, you know, this is this isn't the best thing that comes of it. This big cash injection the Annings get because the auction raised the profile of the Anning family business. So, so heavily. You wouldn't believe it. It raised their profile enormously. Wealthy blokes from all around Europe were flying flying in? Definitely not flying in. What am I talking about? Definitely not flying in. What were they doing? Probably on, probably on a carriage and then on a boat, to be honest. I didn't research that very thoroughly, but I can almost certainly rule out flying in, you know, 1820. Anyway, blokes from around Europe, they get there. They get to this auction. They're bidding on these things. They're loving it. They're taking their dinosaur bones home. But of course... They all find out, they all, they all know this, these were dug up by the Addings and, and specifically Mary. So this is a huge shot in the arm in terms of their notoriety as, as fossil hunters here. This is very, very good for their reputation. So with her pockets jingling and her newfound notoriety, Anning, she reckons she's in a good spot to take things further here. In the 1820s, therefore, at some stage, um, she, she really makes a decision to try to work towards uh, opening a proper shop instead of selling them on a table like you know a little little lemonade stand out the front of her house she, she decides at some point in the early 1820s i'm going to open a shop here i'm going to get all these things together and i'm going to i'm going to you know pull my resource as much as i can save towards actually getting a little premises going and she does it 
gets it done, not a worry at all, in 1826 at the age of 27. I wish I had more details to give to you about this whole process she, that she went to, but we actually don't know too much about her as a person, Mary Anning. We don't know too much about her personality or what she was like or, you know, what her, her sort of the ins, you know, the more the more personal details, more intimate details of her. We don't know too much about her, to be honest, but we do know from a professional standpoint what she got, to, what she got going. And as I say, in 1826, at the age of 27, she opens... Anning's Fossil Depot, which I think is a a pretty <laughs> it's a pretty good name. I mean, there are the probably better options would have you know, fossils are us, I suppose, or whole lot of fossils or something. But in any case, Anning's Fossil Depot, I'm a big big fan of that. So with a lot of hard work and some good luck, Anning does a ripper job of really trying to establish herself as an expert on these things. Now, not only is she harvesting these fossils like there's no tomorrow, not only is she selling them in this shop that she set up, she's also, as I say, trying to make an effort to establish herself as a real scientific authority on fossils as well. She finds herself the first ever complete plesiosaurus skeleton in 1823. And despite being knocked back by all these, you know, dickhead gentlemen scientists of the day, she uses her basic education to investigate and research as much as she can about paleontology so she ha- she's as informed as possible about these great discoveries that she's making. She also finds the first ever pterosaur on English soil in 1828, which was then put on display in the British Museum. She also found a bunch of other important but, you know, less interesting species. And generally speaking, she's digging more of these things out of the ground than anyone else around. Um, this is not as we'll discuss this a bit more later on, but this is not the safest of work, and it's best done in the winter, uh, so it's not pleasant work either. We'll talk about about that a little bit more later on, but she is working like there's no tomorrow, doing her very best, not only, as I say, to dig these things out of the ground, but also to learn as much about them as possible. She buys and borrows as many scientific papers as she can. She copies out great big slabs of text from the documents that she's borrowed and even annotates them with her own notes and drawings. And these notes and drawings were so good that some scientists that were around at the time uh, you know, they they actually talked about not knowing which bits had been copied and which bits she'd done herself after reviewing these notes she'd made. So she really, you know, she, she's really got a, a sharp old brain box between her ears there and, and she's putting it to good use. She also did stuff like dissecting modern animals like fish and that whatever to get a better sense of how they're put together so as to help her figure out what was going on with some of these fossils that she was digging up and, you know, just generally doing everything that she could to improve herself as, as, as a scientist, which, as, a, as, as you can imagine, for a woman in the early 19th century, was a very, very difficult thing to do. <clears throat> anyway, most of her success, most of her success was just the dogged determination that she had in digging these bloody things out of the ground. And as I mentioned, this work was des- best done in winter. The reason for that was because that's when there were more landslides on the cliff. So, you know, she's at her, work- she's at her workspace. I mean, imagine that. Imagine having a workplace, a workspace where you're, it's, a- it's actively good for you when there are landslides through it, that's that's well, that's the reality that that, that Anning lived in. She the, the the landslides that would happen in winter would usually um, reveal more or open up more avenues for for fossils to be found. Right, landslide takes away a, a bunch of the earth or a bunch of the rock, and then under that you can find more fossils. It makes a lot of sense. The problem is, right? You know, unearthing more fossils in landslides mean that you are working in an area that is filled with you know bloody landslides, which is dangerous work. And there was one time in eighteen thirty three that Anning is nearly killed by one. In fact, her little dog actually does get buried in a landslide, you know, in this event where the landslide happens very close to her. And apparently it was it, it almost got her as well. And this is one of the rare moments where we actually get a little bit of an insight into what was going on with her because she wrote about the, the great loss of her, her companion, the little dog there who used to come along and, and sniff out the fossil. Probably not, 
probably didn't do that. I don't think as, as clever as dogs are, probably aren't able to sniff fossils out. Maybe I'm wrong. Don't know about that. But in any case, this dog was, uh, you know, obviously a treasured companion for Anning. So very, very, very sad when he got, uh, when he got crushed up by that, uh, by that landslide. Anyway. All things should really be going well for Annie here. You know, she's established herself as a as the the premier fossil depot in the area. A business is booming in the 1830s at her shop, and her reputation is growing and growing. And she's continuing to find more and more fossils to sell. This is just a, an unending well. It's like a that magic packet of Tim Tams you saw in the ad, where it just keeps refilling itself every time she uh, she digs up a new uh, a new fossil out of the ground. There's a new one to find the next day. So she's doing very well, but unfortunately. Unfortunately, she continued to be a huge pariah when it came to all the sciences of the days uh, for two, two reasons. Number one, she's working class. So obviously they're looking down their, their long nose through their spectacles of this working class person who obviously isn't fit to be amongst the elite, elite ranks of the, of the gentleman scientists there. And that is the other problem as well. She's not a gentleman. She's a woman. And that's the other reason that uh, people find it very easy to dismiss her or look down at her or laugh at her or... Just steal stuff from her, steal her research, steal her discoveries, steal her, her credit and her reputation. And she gets a, a pretty rough hand, actually. She gets dealt a pretty rough hand in actually trying to achieve the recognition she deserves. And, and we'll talk more about that uh, in, in just a minute. Um, Anning knew more about fossils and dinosaurs and all that sort of stuff than, than just about anyone else who bought things off of her or anyone else who wasn't sort of locked up in a laboratory with them every single day of the year. But of course... It was these people, the people who came and bought it off her and, and, you know, went and presented them to museums and all that sort of stuff. It was them and not her who got all the credit with their scientific reports and papers. Now, most of them didn't even give her credit for her role in, in their, quote unquote, discoveries. And this sort of stuff was pretty common. All these so-called gentlemen scholars taking advantage of, of, of people of the, of the working class and, and especially women. You know, you'd have construction workers or you'd have you know people building roads working class people you know doing their jobs and they'd find dinosaur bones they'd find fossils and then these gentlemen scholars swoop in write a fancy report on them to you know the to these royal societies and the, and, and the museums and what have you and uh, they get all the credit and the poor blokes who are digging them out of the ground or people like mary anning who are, who are the ones doing all the all the, el- the putting on all the elbow grease they get absolutely nothing here and it's made worse, obviously being working class is one thing for, for, for Anning here, but it's made much worse by the fact that she's female because because she was a woman, she wasn't allowed to uh, join the, the Geological Society of London or, she and, and, and what's even worse, she's not even allowed to go to their meetings as a guest, right? She can't even attend these meetings, despite knowing more than most of the blokes who were sitting in these meetings about what they were talking about, she wasn't allowed to be part of it. Very unfortunate, but nonetheless, nonetheless, she didn't let this get her to her too much. There are a few letters that she wrote that indicate that, you know, she didn't enjoy the, the feeling, as you can imagine, didn't enjoy the feeling of being passed over and looked over like this, but this didn't stop her from going about her business. She had some very, very famous visitors to her shop over the years, some of whom were thankfully a little more forward-thinking and sensible about things. So, for example, I'll read off some names here. I don't know how familiar you're going to be with these blokes, but I'll tell you what, they were leading scientists of their day, and uh, this is a, a bit of a who's who of, of, of geology in the in the 19th century here. Roderick Murchison, the, the leading expert on the Silurian period, he worked with Annie extensively and helped her to connect with other customers around Europe, so he, he did some good work in trying to get her name out there as well. Louis Agassiz, the, uh, the founder of glaciology, came all the way from Switzerland to work with her and actually did credit her in the next book that he wrote where, you know, some of the research that she'd done appeared in it. So she got credit for that, which was, I mean, we're talking about this like they deserve a huge big pat on the back for it. I'm, that's not really what I'm saying. I mean, this is what 
you should do in, in, in a scholarly situation. But it, I'm just trying to point out that at the time, these guys, they broke the mould by, you know, including this working class woman as part of their, uh, as part of their list of, of, of references and resources they used. Another bloke, William Buckland, a uh, very, very important fellow in the history of, history of, uh, of geology. He also worked with, uh, with Anning a fair bit here. Buckland was uh, responsible, I like this bit, he, he was responsible here for using fossilised dinosaur poop as a way to investigate uh, ancient ecosystems. And uh, Anning was actually the one who showed him uh, that what until uh, then had been called uh, bezoas, bezoars? I'm, I'm, oh, it is bezoars because that's how Stephen Fry pronounces it when he's doing the Harry Potter audiobooks and does the thing where Snape is asking um, Harry what a bezoar, it's a bezoar. It's definitely a, it's definitely a bezoar. Anyway, they're dinosaur turds. No one, no one realised this. It was actually Anning who pointed them out because when she, when these things broke apart, if she broke apart any of these um, what were then called bezoars, there were other small fossils inside that fossil, which didn't make any sense unless you think, oh, mate, this is poop out of a dinosaur. It's gone and eaten something else. And inside it's, it's, it's these turds, there are other fossilised life forms of stuff that it's eaten back then. Now, Buckland, Full credit given to uh, uh, to Anning for doing this by Buckland, which is fantastic uh, when he published all his papers. But he did change the name. He he, taught, he called them coprolites. Uh, but he did give her he gave her big ups for helping her out with the whole thing and uh, helping him out with the whole thing. And uh, you know this is a very clear indication of how important she was in the research of uh, of people like William Buckland. There are other blokes who visited her as well. In addition to these three, Thomas Hawkins, who unfortunately sold one of the skeletons he bought. Uh, to the British Museum um, that included fake bones because he didn't like the way that he looked, so he put in some extra bones there to try to make it sort of make a little bit more sense in his eyes, so that one wasn't so great. Gideon Mantell, the bloke who discovered the Iguanodon, and uh, even Richard Owen, uh, who actually looked like a bit of a fossil himself, but is responsible for inventing the name dinosaur uh, to refer to prehistoric reptiles. Richard Owen is a very, very interesting character. If you haven't, if you haven't read or, or heard about Richard Owen, he, he is worth a, a bit of a, you know, a bit of a Wikipedia deep dive because uh, I don't know, maybe I'll do an episode on him at some point because he, he was a, he was a real weird one. Anyway. Over the years, over the years, thanks to her, you know, these illustrious visitors and her very important discoveries, most notably the ones we talked about already, the ichthyosaur and the plesiosaur, um, Anning finally, I think it's plesiosaurus, actually. I remember being ichthyosaur. I think it was actually plesiosaurus. I don't know. I'm not a paleontologist. I'm a historian. Not, And even that is generous. So I don't have to know these things. Anyway. And he finally starts to get rid of the recognition she deserves after the, uh, you know, the, the information or the, the, these discoveries and, and the research, the information that has, that has been brought from them begins to spread a little bit further out throughout, throughout Europe. So she was still admittedly held back due to her class and her gender, and unfortunately, but you know, when she got done in, in 1835 by bad investment, her mate Buckland pulled some strings and got her a civilist pension, a type of annuity that kept her going. Um, so this kind of shows that she had earned some of the respect that she deserved and she did have some people in her corner who were you know chucking chucking around punches for her sake there to try to keep her at least in in some kind of, of financial security while she was doing all this important work for the field of you know paleontology geology whatever else anyway despite all this unfortunately um she still you know had to fight through some pretty horrific circumstances especially when it came to some of the discoveries she made Despite being responsible for the discovery of the first ever complete ichthyosaur skeleton, and despite people like Sir Everett Home writing about it extensively, particularly as it cast out on the whole, you know, literal, literal inter interpretation of the Book of Genesis, Anning wasn't mentioned at all. 
she she's responsible for the the discovery of this of this ichthyosaur and you wouldn't know it based on the literature that's flying around even though she had discovered cleaned and prepared the fossil all of the credit went to others even the credit for preparing and cleaning the fossil went to other blokes the other blokes that she had sold the fossil to which is pretty bloody deplorable and similar to this when she uh, when she discovered the first uh, complete remains of the plesiosaur plesiosaurus Man, I'm gonna, oh man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna really kick myself with this one. I should have written this down. Um, she was left out of the discovery uh, discussion in, entirely, even though she was the one that that was responsible for discovering it again. Didn't even get a mention. In 1824, a bloke named William Coney Bear, uh, who first named and scientifically reported on the plesiosaur, uh, even he even used a drawing that Anning had done in one of his presentations and didn't bother crediting her. This is the sort of stuff that get you booted out of a university these days, and they're getting away with it scot free. It was, it was, it was bloody terrible, I tell you. Richard Owen, the, the weird bloke I was telling you about before who looks like a fossil himself, he used Anning's work without crediting her. But, you know, this one, I, it, it, he was known to be a bit, an absolute mongrel of a bloke generally, so it shouldn't come as much of a surprise. He, he, he You know, this, this wasn't out of character for him, let me say that. Anyway, this sort of thing generally actually wasn't out of character for anyone at the time. It's very, very common for people like Anning, working class people, women like this, who were left out of all this high-minded, you know, scientific back-patting, unfortunately. And, uh, and also, unfortunately, as I say, it took a bit of a toll on her as well. While we, we don't have, again, the most intimate record of her personal life, one of her colleagues, Anna Pinney, uh, once wrote of the toll that it, uh, that it took on Anning. But today, however, we can, uh, we can right some of those wrongs by giving Anning the credit she deserves for the contribution she made to science, both then and now, even now. Uh, because the biggest impact that Anning's work made had to do with extinction. At the time, the scientific theory of extinction was an almost blasphemous one, and therefore it wasn't something that a lot of scientists wanted to attach their names to, as it necessarily implied that God had stuffed up, right, and made things that weren't, uh, that weren't perfect. And also, much in the same vein as, if we evolved from monkeys, why are there still monkeys?, uh, one of the arguments back then was the the rather mind-numbing, if species come and go, why aren't there new species popping up every day? So you can see that the scientific discourse at this time in the in the early to mid-19th century wasn't really at the sort of bleeding edge of, of, of you know, biological understanding that we have today. But all the same, it wasn't a theory. And extinction wasn't a theory that was put about as, as generally one that was very credible because, again, it, was, it, it went against the grain of mainstream religion with all their nonsense about, you know, God being infallible and, and whatever else like that. So, you know, it, it really did ruffle some feathers there. Um, and and just to show you how dogmatic scientists were uh, and how very clearly influenced they were by religion at this stage, this is not a joke, to explain the the evidence of, of weird undiscovered prehistoric animals like the ichthyosaur and like the plesiosaurus, maybe, um, these dogmatic scientists, quote-unquote, would claim that these animals lived in unexplored or undiscovered parts of the earth. That's how reluctant they were to admit that extinction might actually be something that takes place, as we all know it does today. Now, Anning discovering something like the plesiosaur, which is obviously an animal so different from any other animal on earth currently, it ultimately threw a lot of weight behind the idea of extinction. And it also aided scientists like uh, Georges Cuvier, uh, an early critic of Annings, who later had the grace to admit how wrong he had been about her, uh, in proposing the theory of an age of reptiles when dinosaurs ruled the earth a very long time ago. So Anning put together a fair number of the building blocks uh, that led us to a lot of the basic scientific understandings that children these days 
are very, very capable of comprehending. So really, really important stuff here from Mary Anning. In addition to the theory of extinction, Anning's work with William Buckland, the bloke I mentioned before, uh, with dinosaur turds, also paved the way for us uh, to understand prehistoric ecosystems properly. So this also leads to the proper understanding of ancient food chains and things like that, and helps us to characterise the prehistoric Earth as one that was very different from our own today, which is very challenging, again, to people at the time who are going off the old world created in seven days nonsense. In other words, Anning's work was instrumental in supporting this, this great web of scientific learning that you know, f- pushes further scientific discovery forward, helping to explain and contextualise extinction, illustrating what the ancient world looked like, and generally just adding momentum to the ever-expanding breadth of, of human knowledge. In addition to this, there is one thing I probably need to mention while talking about a legacy, uh, the famous tongue twister. It's uh, said to be based on Anning. She sells seashells by the seashore. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, it is said to have been based on her because she did sell seashells by the... Not really seashells, but we'll, we'll give it a pass. She sells fossils by the seashore. doesn't have the same ring to it. Um, as neat as it would be for this to be the case, there's no convincing evidence linking this phrase to Anning. So, oh well. Anyway, Mary Anning, she died on the 9th of March, 1847, from breast cancer. So she was relatively young. She was only 40, 47 years of age when she died, unfortunately. And uh, as I mentioned, we don't know too much about her as a person, but it is safe to say that very few people had much to say about her that was negative, or very few people that should be listened to, in any case, had anything to say about her that was negative. And by all accounts, she seemed to be a pretty excellent person, in addition to a pretty excellent scientist. Her, uh, her reputation by the time she died was such that the Geological Society came together to raise money for her in the year before she died to pay off some of the debt she had, and the Dorset County Museum made her an honorary member. Uh, the president of the Geological Society, her longtime friend Henry de la Beche, actually wrote a eulogy that was published in the Society's Quarterly, the first ever such eulogy for a woman. And in 1850, three years after she died, her local church, St. Michael's, unveiled a stained glass window uh, honouring her contributions to science and, I might add, to her benevolence of heart and integrity of life. And the windows are still there today. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That's the story of Mary Anning. And if you, like me, were a human child at one point, you were probably super into dinosaurs. And this was a very nice little trip down memory lane for me, reading about all these dinosaurs, that sort of stuff. But I'll tell you what, hats off to Mary Anning, sticking to this passion throughout her entire life and actually making a very significant change to the course of scientific learning and scientific advancement with some of the discoveries she made, despite the fact that she had to slog through all of this nonsense and discrimination based on her class and her gender. So good on you, Mary Anning. The half-past history tick of approval is yours, which I'm sure you don't need because you had stained glass windows and are generally a very well-known and, and deservedly so scientist. So good on you, Mary Anning. Another accolade for the old trophy trophy case there. Anyway, anyway, that's that for this episode. Of course, the normal boring housekeeping announcements to rush through at the end of the show halfhousehistory.net is your place for everything you need to know about the show you can find old episodes there. you can get in touch with the show with the contact form there or you can email me directly halfhousehistory at gmail.com i want to thank all the people who have been emailing me uh, asking for stickers they're on their way going to be a pretty big delay with them at the moment because I'm, I'm i'm still on my holidays here but uh, they are coming out. And thank you uh, in particular to all the Patreon uh, members, all the people on Patreon, chucking me money every every month. I do appreciate it. More 
than words can well actually no probably not more than words can say but a lot i guess a lot you know i'm not gonna not gonna sugarcoat it really really very thankful to, to everyone getting up and about there so thank you to all of those people uh doing that uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Half Fast History without an O as well. Twitter's been a bit quiet. I've had a busy couple of months just doing a whole lot of nothing, really. So I'll get back on it at some stage. But in the meantime, Half Fast History without an O wouldn't fit very annoying if you want to get across the show, uh, the show's Twitter page. And that is about that. Going to close things out as ever with a question posed on Reddit. Reddit historian My Randall wants to know what caused the extinction of the Thesaurus and why was it so much later than the other dinosaurs? <laughs> <laughs>